Welcome to the very first episode of Inside the Law. I am very pleased to have our guest today, Sharon Johnson. Hi. Hi there. Sharon is a family law attorney. She's been in practice as a co-founder of Johnson & Johnson in Florham Park, New Jersey, and she founded that firm with her father 20 years ago. Tell me about your upbringing and how you arrived at the decision to be an attorney and how you ended up in family law. It's actually probably far less um, cerebral or dignified than one might imagine. I went to college and graduated in 1992, and it was a recession at the time, and I was an English major, and nobody was beating my door down to read books for a living. <laughs> so um, I figured I had to come up with something to do, and always liked his job. I can't recall a day when he was what he was doing. I'm sure he had bad days. We didn't know about them, but he never spoke anything other than 100% positively about his career path, his job, and um, what he got up and did every day. So I probably just by default, that is what I um, chose to do, knowing that I would also have the support of my parents as opposed to um, a, a, an advanced degree in something else. I knew that they would be over me, whether that was financially, emotionally, or otherwise. Um, and then while I was in law school, and then while I was in law school, my father was um, part of a partnership. There were about five attorneys there, and I would get what fell off everybody else's desk, whatever kind of file they didn't want to be working on. And um, I found a lot of it less than interesting. I mean, it probably was interesting. We're talking about me as a as a 22 to 25-year-old, for lack of a better term, kid. The first matrimonial file that was given to me had some X-rated greeting cards in it that a wife had found in her husband's desk at work along with women's underwear and as strange as it is I thought wow this is super interesting <laughs> um, in retrospect none of it needed to be there it wasn't relevant to the file but it, I think just the the salacious nature of it all of a sudden I perked up and thought oh well this could be interesting I don't think at that point I fully realized the emotional component to it or or all the other moving parts of this super emotional area of law, but I found the facts compelling. And then I just sort of got all the files that that were even remotely matrimonial at that point. I got all of the sort of emotional stuff. I got collection work for a funeral home, which was very emotional because if people don't pay their funeral bills or their, their loved one's funeral bills, it's because something probably went wrong and the, the the emotion level was really high um even to this day at at well at the firm I'm at with my father I tend to get some of his work when the when the um emotions are running really high the best example of that is I get the contested estates and he and I will work on those together but those are very very emotional you know maybe a brother versus a sister fighting over mom and dad's estate and you know it, it comes down to did mom love you better than she loved me so it there's a lot going on in those files but to this day I get the stuff that everybody else is afraid to touch 
That's interesting. So the, the type of case that you are drawn to, most other people are fleeing from. Why do you think that that's something you're so drawn to and so good at? I think because, I, I don't want to say I'm desensitized, but it doesn't shock me. It doesn't scare me. It did at the beginning, but now that I know how to do it, um, I find it to be second nature, and I feel the need to run alongside of my father's files. Not that he's not 100% competent, but I think I seem I want to insert myself into it to manage everybody's expectations, to sort of explain to them within the framework of their really ripe emotions what the law is. It's hard to be respectful of where they are emotionally and still have this sort of realistic conversation with them. It's a really fine line you have to walk recognizing where they are without looking like you're dismissing it, but still having a realistic conversation with them about whether the law is sort of aligned with where they are emotionally and that sort of thing. So I think I do it now in the, the areas that are outside of family law just to sort of do a better job than my father does in terms of managing clients or tiptoeing around them because they're, they're you know, at their worst, whether they're hurt or scared or whatever the case may be. I think I just do it more often than he does. So those muscles are really primed. You've seen a hundred similar situations or maybe 500. So you're able to recognize, oh, this is, this is this person and what they're struggling with. And I know I need to just let them get the next 10 minutes of ranting out of their system or whatever the right decision is at that time. Yes, I, I think that's accurate. And the other thing that you just touched on is um, sort of leads to something else. And I don't want to get too far off topic is I um, was trained to be a mediator. I'm on a court-approved list for family law mediation. But uh, during that training, there was a decent size component of psychological, not training, but information that was given to us so that I think you, you recognize certain things, there's certain patterns that repeat themselves, and you know what it is when you when you see it and you there's certain people that you say I have to let them as you said either just work through this and come out the other side I have to let them know that they were heard or that I understand before I tell them maybe that the law doesn't support them they have to know that they were heard and I listened to every aspect of it and told them the aspects that aren't relevant to a judge but I heard them and, and then it's easier for them to accept if they know that you let them tell you every aspect of it that's important and you could tell them why it still doesn't help them or, or why you understand emotionally that that's important, but legally it doesn't help them. It may even work against them. Are you typically the only person who really listens to what the, your clients are saying and takes in all the emotions they're going through and gives them that acknowledgement and validation? I think on an ongoing basis, yes. There's certain people who, you know, sort of pop into the case and pop out that may listen as it, as it relates to certain topics. For example, a, a custody expert, somebody doing a best interest evaluation will listen at length. 
um, they generally in the midst of a custody evaluation, you are given a certain opportunity to voice your concerns, but there is no there's no validating it in that uh, context because the expert is generally neutral. They're bound by ethics, and so they don't sit there and tell you how much they understand. They're they're generally presenting sort of a poker face uh, during an evaluation or any kind of expert assessment or um, analysis. Um, my mother is a social worker or a therapist. Yes. And we were just speaking the other day and about the idea that perhaps people who are beginning to go through divorce or any type of emotionally charged legal event should, in addition to having the best counsel they can possibly have, go be in counseling so that they have the emotional support of a person that can really, they can unload their feelings to and can help them through on the emotional side so that they are maybe a little bit less emotional and better prepared to have the conversation with their attorney uh, about the legal matter. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, and I agree. I think people are generally afraid. They're hurt. They're angry. And sometimes there's a, a certain level of a, a lack of self-awareness, for lack of a better term. The, the stress level is unbelievable, So you, especially for the non-initiating spouse. There's, there's a spouse who's been grieving the, the loss of their marriage sometimes for two years before they get to my office. And then there's the other spouse who, whether they were told every day for the last year or not that it's coming, are still surprised when they get the letter from an attorney or a complaint in the mail. And they thought they had the rest of their life planned out, and now all of a sudden they don't. So the, the level of like fear and anxiety is probably overwhelming, sometimes paralyzing. I think a mental health expert would help you work through that. But they also can help you define your goals, which makes you better at communicating with me and, and helps me achieve those or tell you which ones are unrealistic. A few years ago, I had a, a woman come to me, and her husband was the initiating spouse. She clearly did not want this divorce, even though maybe at the end of this, it was better for her. And it, it became evident to her at a certain point that he was having an extramarital affair. She was angry. She asked me every day, can you get him out of the house? Can you get him out of the house? Can you get him out of the house? And there's there's nothing that can get a, a person out of the house if they don't want to leave but for domestic violence or something that's harmful to the children or something, some emergent application. Just because you don't like each other and it's tense or, or something to that effect doesn't mean somebody has to leave. So eventually... The other attorney and I came up with a plan where they, the parties would share their children. We had defined um, the the financial components to it so that he would still support the household, cover the roof expenses, see the kids on an ongoing basis. The minute I told her that it was a done deal, she said, well, he can't leave. Can you make him stay? So she, the, she just, she was just fraught with like, conflict and hurt and whatever the case may be but if she perhaps if she had had a a therapist she could have been better able to identify what she was trying to achieve no that makes sense how do you manage your emotions i mean these are people you're with dozens or hundreds of hours i'm sure you care about them and to see them at maybe one of the worst moments of their lives 
how do you manage? I think there's no clear-cut answer for that. I think you manage each case as it comes to you. It's sort of fact-sensitive. I think you have to be careful about boundaries and letting them know that they are not your only client and that you do your best for every client. And I do. I truly do my best for them. Um, there's there's a tendency for people to sort of couch what they want in the name of their children, which may or may not necessarily be what's in their children's best interest. So you can remind them what a judge is going to do or what a, a, a mental health expert, such as a, a forensic psychologist doing a best interest evaluation is going to do. So you sort of keep them on the straight and narrow by telling them, look, I can ask for X, I can do Y, but at the end of the day, if you can't resolve it, this is it's going to court and this is what's likely going to happen. So they know what their, the alternative is if, if we can't resolve this ourselves. So you have to sort of keep them grounded. You can coach them to the extent that they're coachable in terms of here's how I would like you to behave in the interim. But you don't want to, you don't want to make a stark raving lunatic look like a great dad for just the three months before a custody evaluation because really, one, that's I have an obligation to children, and two, it's not sustainable. If he's a stark raving lunatic and I can get him to be on his best behavior, it's going to fall apart the day after the evaluation. So you just sort of have to have regular conversations with people about what you're going to be able to achieve realistically. Of course, money is always a factor because you know there's people who want a pound of flesh. They want you to just go after that last ten thousand dollars. I'm just using an arbitrary figure, and you can remind them that it's going to cost them eleven thousand to get there. And there's people who don't mind that. It's it's about the pound of flesh. And then there's some people who put on their their business hat and and sort of make a financial decision. Okay. I want to go back to something you mentioned a few minutes ago. You talked about a hypothetical, stark, raving, mad uh, client of yours. Mm -hmm. And you said that you have obligation to that person's children. Yes. Talk to me about that. Ethically, attorneys are not allowed to undertake an action that is harmful to the children in the family. So we don't have to be a better parent than, say, they are. But I'm not allowed to... Uh, extreme example would be I have knowledge that dad is a pedophile I know that dad has some history with the child and I don't reveal that and I fight for primary custody for dad that would be unethical on on my part there's a lot of gray area though there's there's you know something short of that I could take say dad has a short temper and mom doesn't what I would probably do in that situation is send dad to a parent coach or some kind of anger management or something to help dad be better and then sort of take him from where he is. I mean, I've had that before. But the other thing often is you don't know a lot of times who's telling the truth. And sometimes people don't purposefully lie to you, but the the conflicting stories between, say, mom and dad are night and day. And, and we don't know. Sometimes we guess. And some, once in a while, I think we guess wrong. But that's when you rely on 
mental health experts and it's I think it's really important if you're getting one to get a good one because there's a lot riding on it and your clients have to you know read this report at the end that that decides the, their fate and the fate of their children and it has to look like it makes sense and we have to rely on it and say this person took the time and paid attention to these people and this is what they're recommending okay the instance where one spouse recorded the other in one of their worst moments ever. It was the perfect storm of circumstances and stress. And will a judge take that into account and say, well, wait a second, this can't be who this person is all the time, or here's the evidence and you just can't, you are dealing with a bad situation that's going to have an unfair outcome, but you're really, it's kind of hopeless. You can't do anything about it. If I do my job, the judge would see it in the context of the bigger picture, as would a mental health expert who gets this audio in their, you know, sort of mailed to them with a package of other things. But I think a seasoned family court judge knows that there's a lot of different scenarios that could lead to this. And, you know, judges are human beings, so Judge A in Morris County might react differently than Judge C in Passaic County. But I think generally a judge who's been there more than a hot minute knows to, to sort of take context and afford things the appropriate amount of weight. The other thing is the longer they've been there, the worse they've seen so they are less horrified. But then at the same time, you have judges who develop sort of a hot button issue and they're like, and we as attorneys know what some of those are. There's a, a particular judge in Union County that came to sit on the um, bench presiding over divorces. But before that, he was doing um, like, the worst of the worst sort of um, DCPP cases. So What's DCCP? It's what used to be DIFUS. Which is? Um, Division of Youth and Family Services. Now it's um, Division of Children uh, Protection and Permanency. So it's the people that come in and take your kids out of your house okay. or the people that come in and bring you resources if you just need a little help. Okay, thank you. Do you get a sense you might be talking to someone who's not an expert? Well, I think it's, it's great if you don't know what DCP and P is. It means they haven't been in your house. So Thank you very much. Yeah. I didn't yeah. think of it that way. I'm glad you did. Yes, but but those, those are the horror cases. Those are the people that put out cigarettes on their children. Those are the people who do less dramatic but still harmful things. They get drunk every night and scream in front of the kids, and, and so somebody comes into the house. So now you get a judge who used to preside over those kinds of cases. Now he's doing what looks more civilized in terms of divorces, but he still brings with him the sort of baggage that he had there and and the triggers that says, I will not tolerate this because it looks too much like something else. So you, you sort of have to be mindful of who your audience is, and you also rely on your experts to sort of afford it the right amount of weight. They process facts, but they also process psychological testing and and incorporate a lot of other things into their reports. So there's no one issue usually or one incident, like the incident with dad and the perfect storm. There's not usually one incident 
but for something truly horrible that that the case stands or falls on. Okay, so a, a pattern of behavior. Somebody, um, this guy Mark Suster said he looks for lines, not dots. Like a dot is that one perfect storm incident. Instance, a line is lots of dots connected together where we're clearly seeing this is the person in January and February and March and May and June, July. And that is that part of what yes. you look for or try to establish? Yes. I mean, I th- if you and I, as parents, you know that your parenting style probably isn't defined by your absolute best day or your absolute worst day. It's most of those middle days. And I guess that's what you're calling the line. But that's what a qualified expert will look at. That's even what a judge without the expert would probably look at. Okay, that makes sense. I want to go back and press one more time because when I asked about how do you take care of yourself with all these very, very difficult emotional situations and you must care about your clients and you're in the midst of people's worst moments a lot of the time, how do you take care of yourself and how do you think your profession has colored your view of relationships and marriage? Oh, that's an excellent question. I think the way I take care of myself is boundaries. You know, there people, as you said, they're at their worst and there's no way for them to understand that this could possibly be less important to you than it is to them. And I don't mean it's not important. This is my job. And I know that I have people's lives sort of hanging in the balance, whether it's their life savings, their children, and things of that nature. But when I go home at night, I know I did the best I could. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't follow my instructions. So I have to sort of turn it off. Um, I have deadlines sometimes where I have to work late. But when I'm done, I'm done. I try not to read my emails if I'm out for the day with my children and that sort of thing. And the way it affects how I view marriage is that I think it made me realistic about marriage. And what I mean by that, there are plenty of people who make it to my office who wish that they weren't there. And I think if they had had the the you know, the ability to go back and do things over, some of them might. Some don't want to be there just because the process is scary or there's not enough money or that sort of thing. But some would take back the things they complained about, the things they lost it on their spouse about, and that sort of thing. I think, and I'm imposing this, nobody's really ever said this to me, but it looks to me that there's some people that thought my life still would be better with that person i bitched at every day, or I would still rather have them there. They were a net positive, and I focused on the negative. So I think it makes me as a spouse, although my husband might tell you otherwise, (laughs) worry about only the stuff I really believe is worth worrying about. And communication's important, I think, but I don't think you need to have my job to know that. I think most people who don't end up in my office know that. (laughs) Sure, okay. Do you mind walking me through Divorce 101? Give me a sense of like, okay, here's how divorce works, what the law seeks to accomplish in the process, and and just kind of that basic, if you're thinking about divorce, you ought to know this. Absolutely. There's generally two ways it can start, and there's one I recommend in the absence of an emergency. So I'll tell you both. 
the first way is somebody's thinking about a divorce. They come and see me and say, what does it look like? What's it going to cost? What's the process? And then we initiate the divorce by sending their spouse a letter that says, um, so-and-so is interested in getting divorced, but we want to do it amicably. Therefore, get an attorney, have the attorney call me. We'll see if we can work it out. Or so-and-so is interested in divorce and would like to explore mediation. So go see an attorney and have the attorney call me and we'll, we'll pick a mediator. I generally try to strongly encourage the other side to get an attorney because I think a educated negotiator is much better than an uneducated one. First of all, the, the power is even, secondly, you focus on the real issues. Somebody else has been able to filter for me what's worth fighting about and what isn't, and it's fair. But we try to do it amicably, whether it's, you know, four of us sitting down at a table, whether it's me sending a client home to the kitchen table with his or her spouse to to see what they can resolve themselves to keep costs down, sending them to mediation with or without attorneys, that sort of thing. And then if it's successful, whether it's, you know, with the help of somebody else or not, then we draft an agreement, sort of circulate it between the parties and their attorneys to come up with an agreement that reflects everything that was agreed upon, and then um, file a complaint for divorce. And you can literally call the court shortly thereafter, say we have a resolved case, we're coming in, takes about 10 minutes, you go in and what they refer to as put the divorce through, you testify for a couple minutes about the date of your marriage and the, the voluntary execution of the agreement and you're divorced. In the event that doesn't work or the, the letter's not well received when you say we well, want to work it out amicably, or it is, but it just sort of stalls, then somebody files a complaint for divorce. If that's the route you go, generally you it's, it's sort of what you see on TV. Somebody gets served. They have 35 days to answer. They go and generally get an attorney, file an answer or a counterclaim, whatever um, they choose to do, and then you're essentially, you're in the bakery where you took that that ticket and you have a number and you're just waiting online for them to call you. And then there are certain stops along the way. So the first thing you would be called into court for is something called a case management conference where the judge brings everybody in and sometimes they do it over the phone, which I think, even though it's easier, is unfortunate because I think it's helpful for litigants to get into that courtroom, see how the judge works, see what the process looks like, and see what they're putting themselves in the middle of if they choose to really pursue every every battle that's available for them to to fight. Oh, excuse me. No, what, not at all. Would it be helpful for people, even if it only gets them two-thirds of the benefit, to even see an hour's worth of video like showing here's what this actually is. So if someone's not inclined or able to go in person to it, they get a sense of it. Would that be helpful? Absolutely. There, There is a judge in Morris County who used to, and this was um, slightly different, but I think it's sort of the same thing, is before you got to trial, she would make you sit in her courtroom and watch a trial for two full days because she wanted you to sort of see how the sausage was made to see, I think, how unrewarding it is, how slow it is, and how 
devoid of what you think is ripe with meaning the process is, how many things are inadmissible or irrelevant and that sort of thing. But just to see how it works, it's not, you're not getting your like, you know, quote, day in court, the, the way you see it on TV. You, you pay your attorney to show up at whatever time they tell you to be there. The judge takes an hour to have you mark your exhibits and place stipulations on the record. Then you get maybe an hour and a half of testimony. Then the staff breaks for lunch. Then there's an emergent application that comes in right after lunch. So you break again. So you might get four hours of actual court time but you paid your attorney nine hours, you know, to drive there, sit there, eat lunch, and not work on something else. And again, to see that it might take a day just to go through how the AT&T stock split in in the 90s into those baby bell, maybe that's the 80s. I'm just making up a, a sort of boring, dry sort of um, topic, and that might be your day in court when really... That's not what you thought it was going to look like. So yes, I think it's helpful for you to see the process each step along the way. The example I was using was an actual trial, but I think a lot of it is helpful because I think people don't fully understand what it looks like. And I mean, they're not really expected to. When you get to an attorney, your mind is racing. You have 18 questions when I'm answering them you're already like your mind is already racing about what your next question is or I created a few new issues for you while I was talking about something else and they don't maybe understand how one stop along the the way on the way to trial is different from another and how judges don't make decisions at certain points in your case um, unless it becomes an emergency or unless you pay your attorney quite a bit of money to put that issue in front of the judge. Okay. Um, if I were your client, every single time I sit down with you or speak with you on the phone, it seems like I ought to have a notebook and be carefully writing down everything you say, everything I'm supposed to do to follow up on. So I'm just organized and I can recall your valuable advice rather than have to call you up again. Is that a basic, you know, if you're ever going to deal with an attorney, make sure you do this. Absolutely, because we'll answer the question as many times as you want, but you're paying for it, and sometimes it's after the fact. It's, you know, we we explain something at the front end and assume you remembered it. So then, when we get to this crossroad, we assume you know what we told you. But if you didn't, we don't. We may not even know to remind you. And and if even if you ask us again, one, it might be after the fact, and two, you're paying for it twice. I mean, the the thing that you're paying for in a divorce aside from experts fees and you know expenses like you know depositions and um, court reporters is our time so you really want to use it only when you have to use it the idea is we're available and we're here for you when you need us but don't need us more than you actually need us because it's just going to drive up fees I like your concern about giving your clients value don't pay for the same thing three times take notes when I write it when I give you that value the first time and refer to your notes later I mean I, I like that the reality is I'm trying to preserve your assets and and your income stream and I don't think that I did a great job if I have to charge you more than the value of what we're fighting over a lot of that is in the control 
of of the litigants. Some of it's outside of either of our control because of the way the the process runs. But I want to remind people that they have the ability to sort of make it one kind of divorce versus another, whether it's expensive or inexpensive, whether it's acrimonious or sort of civilized, they have the ability to make it what they want it to be. Okay. Thank you. I had pushed us down this tangent. You were in the midst of telling us Divorce 101. Oh, right. The process. Okay. So we, I think we left off at a case management conference, which is your first court appearance. It's just the judge basically giving you a calendar with deadlines on it, trying to pin you down to what the issues are and bring in experts or um, set up alternative dispute resolution um, options to sort of get those off the table. So if if the judge sees at the case management conference that custody is going to be an issue, they'll, one of the things they might do is send you to court-ordered custody and parenting time mediation right out of the box. And if you don't resolve it there, they'll give you a deadline in which you have to hire your custody expert. But that's, that's the case management conference. People think something substantive is going to happen. Their judge is going to make decisions. They don't. They just give you a roadmap for the rest of the divorce. So now you're waiting sort of online for the next step. Your, your case, in depending on what county you're in, could sort of be languishing while nothing's happening. If something, if a need arises, you do something called filing a motion. It's you go into court with, a list of what you need and why and hope that the judge is going to make a decision that's beneficial. Generally, you want a judge to, say, order support or tweak a, a parenting arrangement. In the meantime, it's meant to be temporary. So you file something about a month later, you get into court, and the judge will make a decision. If you don't need the court's attention in the interim, then the next time you end up in court is for something called an early settlement panel. You go before, for lack of a better term, a firing squad of seasoned matrimonial attorneys who practice in your county on a regular basis. Your attorney submits a package to them. They listen to the attorneys, tell you what the case should be worth, and then they bring the litigants in and make a recommendation for settlement. They're volunteers. They have no dog in the race. They're objective, and that is an invaluable opportunity to hear some interesting perspective on what your case is worth. When I first started practicing, that was a new program, and people would get divorced that day. They would go in, they would hear. It was the first time they heard from somebody else what their case was worth. Now, because there are steps afterwards and attorneys know it, it generally, my experience is it most frequently settles at the step just beyond that now. The other thing that's different is... Back decades ago, if I were to get my client divorced at the early settlement panel, we would go in, we would put on the record what the what the deal was, and then somebody would go home and write a, a 35-page agreement uh, solidifying that. Now we don't like to do that, and judges don't like to do it because you get them divorced, you only put eight terms on the record, and then there's a fight after the fact. So it's the sloppiest divorce in the world. So now, even if you're settled... There's nobody really wants to do it that way. So you still go home and draft an agreement to make sure you have a deal before you tell a judge you have a deal. If you don't settle at the early settlement panel, you attend court-ordered mediation. And that is generally where 
people have been settling most frequently in my cases recently. So you, once again, the person volunteers their first two hours of time for free. You attend mediation. You either settle or you don't. But by now, you're sort of starting to run out of steam. You're hearing from people that you're issues are winning issues, losing issues, or winning, but they're going to cost you more than than you can afford, or it's a proof issue. You might be right, but you don't have the evidence to establish that you're right. So maybe there's a way to sort of split the difference. For It's not that arbitrary. A, a mediator might not just say, oh, let's split the difference in the middle, but maybe there's a way to do this that makes sense to everybody. If you don't settle there the next thing you get is an intensive settlement conference which is a date with the judge where they basically call you in and lock the courthouse doors until you settle (laughs) Um, and different judges take different approaches to it there's certain judges who get very involved that day I recently had a intensive settlement conference in Morris County where the judge was very hands-on. She kept bringing us in, saying, what can I do? Tell me the issues. She stayed till, I think, 7.30 that night. Her staff had gone home. She kept one person who didn't get paid overtime to sort of run the, the, the equipment that evening. And she said, as it got late in the day, if, you're not, if you don't settle today, you're coming back tomorrow morning, I'll clear my calendar. Because she, she appropriately sensed the momentum and knew that if we stopped there and she said come back in a month that we would start at Genesis the next time we came back she was in touch with the parties and listen to counsel enough to know that it was now or never so now if you don't settle there the next thing is trial I think it's one and a half percent is the most recent statistic I heard of cases that go to trial there is really no reason a case should go to trial, but some do. And sometimes it's for a legal, uh, a complicated legal issue, like a closely held business and value is really a problem. Um, sometimes it's custody, but it seems counterintuitive to me that you would leave the decisions about your children to some third party. A lot of times it's because the level of acrimony or mental illness or or something is is present and it makes the parties unable to negotiate but those are the cases that generally go to trial the other ones are high asset high income cases because the legal fees just don't seem like that big of a deal to them is there is it often the case that something settles in the midst of trial yes yes there are often cases where we're trying one or two issues. You could settle all the financial issues and just try the custody, or you could settle the equitable distribution issues and just have the support. Generally, there's three components to a divorce. There's custody and parenting time. There's equitable distribution, which is just a division of the assets and debts. And there is support, whether it's child support or alimony. So you could settle part of it and then leave the rest up to the judge. Okay. Where do you think there tends to be the least just outcome? The system just doesn't often work well for one side or the other. I believe that it's not equitable distribution. I believe that one is fair generally because it's finite and it's 
whether you agree or disagree, the day you leave court, it's done. The other two are sort of ongoing should you choose to let them be or should the other side decide to make it their life's work. So custody's rough because it, it makes a decision based upon the facts right that minute. If you were to enter an agreement about custody and parenting time, you can address every single aspect of your kid's life from now till the day they graduate graduate school. A judge might not necessarily hold you to those and enforce every single one if, if it deviates from the kid's best interest at some later date. But you can, you can resolve all that. If you leave it up to a judge, they decide the issues that are ripe right that minute, which leaves so much open and there is such a great level of uncertainty that I think it, it could really take over and it doesn't really help your children. I mean, you don't, if your kids are three and four, you don't know how to, and the judge makes a decision about custody and support that day, you have no idea how to plan for college because they didn't decide anything about that. Support is also rough too because, again, if you settle that issue, you can you can do all sorts of creative things with it. If not, the judge decides based on the facts before him or her right that minute. So an example would be mom hasn't worked in, and I'm using mom only because I see it more often. It could certainly go the other way, but mom hasn't worked in 20 years. She had a, a thriving career before that. She needs some job training. If we settle a case, we could say, oh, well, mom's going to get such and such support for the next two years. Dad's going to pay for her um, supplemental training to get her back up on her feet. And then support's going to sort of step down as her career takes off again. If a judge decides that they decide what it is today, and if when things change, you just have to keep coming back. Okay. At, if someone's marriage is not working out, at what point should they visit an attorney? And how should someone go about selecting an attorney? I think it's smart to visit an attorney, even though it feels bad to visit an attorney before you're sure if you want a divorce or not, because I think informed decisions are always the best. So sometimes people get to my office because it's it's fallen apart so irreparably that they truly perceive that they have no choice or they've been living badly for a long time and they end up coming in with a restraining order. I think you should be able to know what your two options look like. So I think if you're thinking about it, go see an attorney while you go see a marriage counselor. Go see somebody and ask, what will it look like? What will it cost? What will the results be? What are my liabilities? What can I hope to achieve? So I would say early rather than later, even though you may not wish to retain one at that point. And I think the best way you find an attorney is word of mouth. Find somebody who you think think did okay in their divorce, who who had the kind of divorce you hope you could have. So you don't want the, the pit bull sort of trial attorney if you and your husband or you and your wife want to do mediation and that sort of thing. You may find an attorney who's able to do both, but I think it's important to find somebody who had the kind of divorce you want and, and find out who they had. Sometimes people end up referring their spouse's attorney rather than their own because they say, well, mine did it okay, that one did it better, that sort of thing. But word of mouth, I think, is the best 
way. You can do it online, but I don't think that's what you want to do. A lot of people don't know people who had a good divorce, so they may not have that in their bag of tricks. I think any attorney you know is a good resource because attorneys know other attorneys. So if you had, you know, a, a... a real estate attorney, uh, even a bankruptcy attorney, your business attorney, something to that effect. They generally know at least one good family law attorney. I know somebody who's a surgeon in another part of the country, and she said that a lot of people recommend this other person that she worked with for surgery. And they say, he's a great surgeon. And it turns out he's very personable and he's very, very fast. He's a little sloppy, but the nurses think he's great because they're out of there in no time at all. And he's such a wonderful human being that it turns out they're recommending someone who is in fact not a great surgeon, but they're saying he's a great surgeon. How uh, likely is it that an attorney who practices corporate litigation is able to properly suggest a great attorney for me if I'm looking for a family attorney? Likely, but not guaranteed. I think there's there's a tendency for attorneys to not want to say, I don't know. So I think they'll find you one, even if it's like a a third hand referral rather than telling you they don't know. But I think you can get a sense from your conversation with the attorney, how much they know that person, why they're recommending them and that sort of thing. You can also interview them, but I know it really early in this process, you may not even know what questions to ask. So I think it it's a little trickier when it's someone outside of your geographical area. Like say you need an attorney to represent you in Florida. That's usually a, a far removed kind of referral. A general practice attorney generally knows at least one good type of every attorney because we get asked it all the time. So I could I could tell you people that I recommend with conviction for most areas of law. I will also tell you if, look, I don't know anyone, but I can find you someone. So that's a, a different kind of referral. So I guess my answer is it varies in terms of how likely is it that you're getting a, a knowledgeable quality referral, but I think it might still be your best shot in terms of getting some kind of educated referral. There's probably some resource I'm overlooking at this point. I just don't know what it is. I think marriage counselors know divorce attorneys, but I don't know that they know the the sort of nuances between the different sort of attorney you might want in terms of one who's settlement-minded, mediation-minded, litigation-ready, that sort of thing. Okay. Talk to me about what someone would experience with a large firm versus a medium or small firm? And is there something that would lead someone? Well, if your circumstances are X, you really ought to go with a large firm or a small firm. I think there aren't many very large family law firms. So there's medium size, like family law boutique firms, and then there's small firms. There are large firms with a matrimonial department. You know, you're never going to find a hundred-person family law firm. You'll might find a hundred-attorney firm with twenty family law attorneys there, and it's just their discrete department. I think if it's a case that promises to result in litigation and 
there's going to be a lot of issues and a lot of experts and that sort of thing. You might want a mid to large size firm just because if it's the kind of case where you need five attorneys working on it at once, you're more likely to get that at a larger firm. If you want personalized, you know, if you want to feel comfortable when you walk in and everyone who answers the phone knows who you are, then you go with a smaller firm. But divorces generally aren't huge in terms of needing 20 attorneys to work on a case. So it's really just what makes you comfortable or at least as Un uncomfortable as possible because nobody's comfortable going to an attorney. It's like a root canal. They, you don't want to be there. You never meant to be there. You're paying money for something that's painful. So it's just what, what works for you. It's scary sometimes. So some people might find it intimidating to walk into a large setting with, you know, a million people walking by. Some people might find that comforting. They might say, I'm putting my life in, in these people's hands. So I want their, I want them to look like a well-oiled machine. It really comes down to what works for you because you can get good representation at every level. Okay. What mistakes do you see people making in their marriages and in their uh, divorce process? I think in their marriages, uh, not to repeat myself, but I think um, some people sort of let issues get away from them and they may, you know, fester about some unresolvable issue rather than sitting down and saying, okay, this one's not going away. How do we navigate a marriage with this issue that's, that's not going anywhere? I think other mistakes people make, and this is either during a marriage, and it, but it certainly is highlighted or exacerbated as things start to fall apart, is money. People spend money differently, and I think people probably should have a conversation before they get married about money, and a really specific, detailed, in-depth conversation about where are we going to spend money, how are we going to save money, and maybe, I mean, I know it sounds goofy, but maybe revisit that every couple years, because you don't, things change dramatically, so as 24-year-old kids, you might have a plan and a certain budget, and then you have different goals or life changes or something to that effect. So sort of sit down and revisit it, renegotiate it after a while because people lie about it. They keep secrets. They they sort of are motivated by their self-interest rather than a collective um, set of goals, and that, that becomes problematic. The way you voiced that just now is so helpful. I mean, this is crystal clear advice that someone just thinking about getting married ought to follow. And then again, every couple of years, let's really make sure we're on the same track. Yeah. I mean, life gets in the way, so it's easier said than done, but it, I think it would be helpful. Those are, those are problems that people, when they get to my office, they have a, a nice, healthy income stream and they have for decades and yet they have nothing to show for. It, and they truly each believe it's the other side's fault that they don't have much to show for it and and that sort of thing again that may be a symptom of a larger problem where it's just they're not defining their goals collectively and it's me versus him or kids versus her or whatever but yeah money seems to be a problem in a lot of cases whether they have a lot or a little what mistakes do you see people making as they initiate and go through a divorce process I think 
they defer to their attorneys too much. I think they are not able to tell their attorney what they want and they sort of sit back and let the attorney decide what kind of a divorce it's going to be. And I think it's always okay to ask, why are you doing this? Or do we have to do it this way? Or is there a way to achieve X or something to that effect? A a competent attorney is never going to feel badly about being second-guessed or questioned or that sort of thing. But I hear uh, spouses, litigants talking sometimes about oh, well, my attorney won't let me do it that way, or, oh, it's too late, or or something to that effect, or they're afraid to say, you're telling me we're going to mediation, can I just talk to him at the kitchen table? Those sorts of things. So I think open communication, I know I said limit your communication, but I meant just keep it efficient. Um, I think advocating for yourself with your own attorney or making your wishes known or asking good questions is important, and I think people's failure to do that is a mistake. Okay, thank you. I'd like to switch gears, and I'd like you to talk to me a little bit, please, about a situation where there is very serious domestic violence. What should somebody do when there are kids involved and when there aren't? First, I think um, my advice would be when in doubt, I mean, even just on a day-to-day basis, when in doubt, call the police first and me second. People worry about the effects of um, involving the police or something to that effect. Um, But I think safety always has to be the primary concern. And I think people, there's people that fall on um, the wrong side of whatever the line should be regularly and what I mean by that is people who who deal with it on an ongoing basis and then you also have people who sort of misuse the domestic violence statute to gain the upper hand in a in a case but I think um, regardless of whether there's children involved or not I think a mental health uh, professional is essential Um, I think that there's a lot of resources available I think the Um, If you file for a restraining order, there's somebody from the uh, Jersey Battered Women's Society who meets you in court, who acts as sort of your advocate, who just sort of runs alongside you as you're going through the process, because the process is really scary for somebody who's never done this before. If you don't know to ask the right questions, you may not get the right information. When you get to court to file a restraining order, they don't tell you if you don't say certain things in the temporary restraining order that you're not going to be able to introduce them later. They, I mean, the, they're intake officers. They're not there to educate you on the law, but you sort of fall through the cracks um, and may not be able to sustain a restraining order that you may sorely need just because you didn't know that you had to tell them the entire history of the case when you, when you got there. But again, I think that mental health professionals in your corner is essential. And I think it's important at every economic level. I think that there are resources available if money's an issue, which it is for a lot of people. I think if there are children involved, that obviously they need help too, whether it's counseling or um, 
a, a supervisor for parenting time and that sort of thing. But they're all, the resources are all there. Um, it, if, if there's domestic violence, it affects the, the process of the divorce because there's certain things you can't do. You can't go to mediation except under very limited circumstances to settle your case. So it sort of takes the process away from you. It, the, the goal is to protect the, the victimized spouse, but in some ways it, it sort of makes that person more of a victim of the system because it's really, you are now in the system in terms of litigating and you don't have a lot of the alternative dispute resolution options that other people have. You, they may work against you should you have them available because the, the dynamic is such that it wouldn't be fair, but it, it sort of leaves you in the system a little bit longer. Should there be some new option available that is sort of gearing itself towards dispute resolution, um, but is, protect, is, is sort of keeping the scales balanced in that yes. situation? Yes, that's a good question. And they did just recently change the rules so that if there is a restraining order in place, you can attend mediation. There's just a, a, a lot of restrictions on it. And a lot of mediators don't touch it. They, they don't want to do it. Um, it. And it's for a lot of different reasons. One, it's new. Two, it's scary. Three, sometimes you don't have the space. There's, you, know, you have to have people in separate rooms, and some mediators have one room available. So they don't, they don't have two waiting rooms. They don't have two conference rooms, things of that nature. So it'll get there, but it's, it's slow to happen as our most things when the law changes. <laughs> There's a lot of half-truths and advice that's just plain wrong. And one thing I've heard is if you leave, in a, even in a domestic abuse situation, you are abandoning the household and there are serious consequences for that. What's the truth of the matter? Okay. Um, the truth is that somebody could file a complaint based on abandonment. The good news is New Jersey is a no-fault state, and it won't matter in terms of how the assets are split. People think, oh, it's, I abandoned the house, so I lost it, or, oh, I'll be charged with abandonment. You might, but it doesn't affect any of the financial aspects of your divorce. The way it does work against you, though, is there's a certain loss of control when you leave. And what I mean by that is if you leave and somebody files a complaint for divorce and you decide you want to come back, you may not be able to come back. If you leave without a custody and parenting plan and the kids don't come with you, you may have to fight for access to the kids. If you leave and the house is ordered to be sold, you're not the one that decides if there's, you know, dirty dishes in the sink on the day of the open house or if somebody mows the lawn the day before, you know, the house is being shown to people. So there's a loss of control, but there's not really a, a direct impact financially or custody-wise just by virtue of the fact that you left the house or left your spouse. So what's a rule of thumb if you were offering some generic situation a little bit of guidance? which this could be the worst question ever. No, not at all, because I get asked, um, can I leave a lot? And my advice is always, I would rather you not leave without a negotiated 
agreement regarding support and children. And what I mean by that is don't think because you left that you're not going to be ordered to pay for part of the mortgage. So now you go and rent a a three-bedroom townhouse and you didn't realize you were going to have to contribute to the mortgage because it's a a marital asset that needs to be preserved. So figure out what's going to happen when you leave, before you leave, because once you're out, it's sort of anybody's guess what could happen the day after should your spouse go running to court or should your spouse decide not to pay the mortgage or something to that effect. So yeah, you can leave, but try to do it after you've resolved the issues. Okay. And if it's a serious domestic violence situation? Oh, just go. Just go and we'll figure it out later because safety's at issue. Uh, Your mental health may be at issue. Your kids may be witnessing things that are horrible. Plus, I can justify a lot in the name of keeping a litigant and a child safe. So, judge, we had to leave um, because X, Y, and Z was happening. So, if you make us pay a little bit to the mortgage... We'll do that, but bear in mind, we were being very reasonable when we left. A judge is going to afford you a little more slack than somebody who just left to go shack up with their boyfriend. Okay. If it's solely spousal abuse, should the abused spouse who's fleeing the household take the children? Yes. Domestic violence is a factor in the custody statute. So while there's no direct connection between a a party who beats his or her spouse and beats his or her children, it is a factor. So if you believe it's an issue or could be an issue or think there's even the possibility you should take your children, what's the worst that would happen is a judge says you have to bring them back half the time. And and if there's, if safety is the issue, you can deal with that on the back end. And what I mean by that is just an example is dad loses his temper every night around seven o'clock it's the kids witching hour or whatever the case may be and so parties could say all right we're going to get a mother's helper to come in from seven to nine thirty every night it kind of depends on what your goal is do you want to make dad look bad or do you want to make dad better for the kids sake so if if it's b there's usually a solution if it's a then that's a, a kind of a different analysis there Okay. Are there any stories that you want to share? There's a million, but I want to be careful that I don't give away anybody's identity. I think this one, and it's not that interesting, but it happened not that long ago, was um, mediation. I was serving as a mediator, and this was a, a private mediation. It was not one where they got to the certain point in the divorce where you're ordered to go, because those are usually a little fraught with tension. This was one where two educated people voluntarily before they filed said, we want to come in and we want to mediate this. Can you just define what is a mediator or what is mediation? Oh, yeah. Okay. So mediation is a voluntary process where I or any mediator serves to facilitate an agreement. We don't make decisions. We don't force you to settle anything. And you just sort of facilitate communication, generate ideas to help people reach an agreement. So these two people came in and wife was literally screaming, running around the conference table and husband was, can you believe this? Can you believe this? And meanwhile, I'm supposed to stay objective, but I'm also supposed to maintain some level of civility 
and so I sort of stopped mom and said, is this helpful to you? Is there a value to this? And she talked for the next five minutes about why running around the table and screaming and telling me about everything he had ever done was helpful to her. And he was frustrated by this, but he also was smart enough to know that mediation was still what he wanted to be doing. So he knew that he could let her waste the next five minutes, half hour, or he could go out and hire an attorney and start the litigation process. So we let her run around. She went to the bathroom, you know, dried her eyes after she cried and accused him of everything. And then she came back and had like a semi-rational conversation and the case settled probably an hour and a half later. What I found interesting about that was you don't always know how you're going to get there. And sometimes if you let people have a certain level of autonomy as to how to get there, they're far more productive. She needed to vent. The way I was saying some people need their day in court. She just needed somebody to hear how bad he was before I leaned in and said, well, would it be okay if you got X as support or if you stayed in the house for Y? As long as somebody heard what he had done, she was okay. So I think it was interesting to me that the process can be different things for different people, but it's also if you give people what they need, and people need stupid things sometimes, but if you give them what they need, they maybe are better able to get there. So this guy had to give up an extra 15 minutes of his life and an extra 15 minutes of my time that he was paying for. And it immediately diffused her and she was ready to sit down and like talk turkey after that. Huh, that's pretty encouraging. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, the other thing I think it shows you is that the process isn't particularly linear so that people can like go off the rails and come back five minutes later they can wake up the next morning and say the deal's off, but they didn't really mean it. They were just having a bad day, or they wanted to see how sorry they can make you, or that sort of thing. Okay. If you had the ability to change the law to make the process more just or faster or something, what would you change? I would make the courts less backlogged. And I'm not blaming judges. I'm not blaming one particular person, but lately... When you file something, it's really backlogged. So a case, I have a case right now. Parties are already divorced. One of the children switches residence between dad's house to mom's house. Mom has now had this child for months without support. And mom doesn't make a lot of money. Dad is the, the wage earner in this family. She's had this child now for literally months we filed she had the child for months before she came to me because you don't file the first day the kid gets there and she's calling me about every three weeks saying do we have a date do we have a date do we have a date this it's it's troubling because she can't afford to live like this and I can't tell her what the date is so I if I could change anything it would be get a couple more judges in each county fill all the vacancies and move things along a little bit better. Okay. Technology. How do you think technology has affected your industry throughout your career? And where's it going? It's changed it several ways. I mean, obviously we can we can communicate differently in terms of 
things that we used to have to send certified mail and allow the extra three days you can send as an email now. And it's affected evidence in the way you gather evidence, too. I mean, the stuff you can find on Facebook or in somebody's email now that you couldn't find before. And I don't want to place too much weight on it because, as I said, New Jersey's a a no-fault state. So people don't really get a lot out of finding somebody up to no good on Facebook, but it certainly can aid or or harm you in a custody battle and, and those sorts of things. Can you tell me what a no-fault state is? A no-fault state means the court doesn't care why you're getting divorced, that it you don't get more or less based upon what the cause of action is. So I can file based on adultery. I can file based upon abandonment or I can file based on irreconcilable differences, which irreconcilable differences is the equivalent of a no-fault complaint for divorce. It does not move the needle one way or the other in terms of who gets what, unless, of course, you can connect the money or the custody to those things. And what I mean by that is you don't get less money because you're um, cheating on your spouse. You might get less money if you're lavishing your paramour with expensive gifts that you're using marital money for. But by virtue of your quote-unquote fault, you don't get more or less. Okay, thank you. Last question. What advice or insight would you provide to somebody who's considering a career in family law or considering being a family law judge? Go watch somebody for more than a day. Maybe watch them at least a day of everything they do because it's not what it looks like on TV. Some days, once in a while, it it does, it is like it looks on TV, but most days it isn't. So just to see what it really looks like. Judges, I think even the same thing, but probably by the time they get to the point where they're being made a judge, they've already watched judges for a good part of their career. So they, they sort of know what it looks like. I guess in their case, I would say talk to other judges, but usually when they get to that level, they're smart enough where they've networked and know what it looks like anyway. So I would say more so for the attorneys coming into it is go look at what, it, what a day looks like here and there. That sounds like great advice. Sharon Johnson, I want to thank you so much for being the very first guest on Inside the Law. And this is Sharon Johnson of Johnson & Johnson Law. Their website is johnsonlawnj.com. That's J-O-H-N-S-O-N-L-A-W-N-J.com. The phone number is 973-937-8959. And they are at 30 Columbia Turnpike in Florham Park, New Jersey. Again, that's Sharon Johnson of johnsonlawnj.com. Sharon, thank you so much. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me.